This snippet comes from episode 103 of Activist MMT with Warren Mosler called Chess, Bridge, and MMT, Always Tinkering, at around the 52 minute 30 second mark of the interview proper. You witnessed, you lived the OPEC oil crisis. Like you, I believe yeah. you were just starting your, or wanting to start your first job when the crisis hit. And yes. so you just, I mean, economics, I mean, it, it's less than, it's less than I thought. It's just, it was, you know, just some courses, a few courses, but right. you witnessed it firsthand. And, and as I, as I understand it, you knew what the real cause was while it was happening. So, uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't think about it at the time. I, and, uh, you know, I knew, you know, OPEC was raising the price, uh, whether it was through causing shortages or through price setting. I didn't have any reason to think one way or another about it. So if you had asked me, I would have said, well, I have to think about it. Mm -hmm. I just had thought through. But you didn't buy, you didn't buy the, like, the monitors, the monitors propaganda. Did, did you, you, how, what was your memory of hearing that? Or, or did you believe that in any way? Did you, did you, I mean, I assume that it had to be I, in your awareness. I mean, that was a huge I, I, part of how they took over. I, I, I didn't hear that. And how is that a part of how they took over? The monitor, I'm learning from uh, economist Assad Zaman that the, the monitorists used the OPEC oil crisis as a coup to, to have a coup to kick out the post. Oh, yeah, the later on. Yeah, so what happened was... Oh, that was later. Okay, I, I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, the crisis was there, the inflation was there. So what happened was, even before that, you know, Nixon had come out with price and wage controls. Which didn't work, and and the Keynesians at the time, I didn't I didn't know anything about post Keynesians, but I guess I don't know when they started. But the the Keynesians at the time uh, had had said, look, you need price and wage controls to take care of this inflation, and the population would rather have inflation than price and wage controls. That's, they mm -hmm. just didn't want the government telling everybody what price to pay, and price mm -hmm. and wage controls can be in their own way hugely regressive because you can always monitor them for the highest for a certain part of the population. So the large unions and steel workers like you know, iron workers and uh, auto workers and whatnot, those were highly visible and where you could uh, and they worked for the largest corporations. So you could you could regulate the wages for the largest corporations. But to reg regulate the wages that you'd pay somebody to cut your grass or something like that, you know, you can't do that. Uh, and, and so when you, when you're in an inflation, you start limiting the wages of groups for these corporations. Of course, you're helping the corporation in a, in a way, and you're hurting those people relative to other people who are working for you, cutting your grass or doing lawn work, who now can make more money because their wages aren't regulated. It's all market determined. Mm -hmm. And so it's only the wages that you're regulating that are getting hurt. Mm. And the rest of the wages that you're not regulating are the rest of the compensation or small businesses that are quasi wages, right, that are doing work for other people, contractors. Those aren't regulated. And it becomes grossly unfair and inequitable. And the government inevitably botches it. Uh, and uh, people would rather have the inflation than have the government trying to do that. Mm. And, and and even back then, there wasn't a lot of confidence in the government being able to do it outside of, you know, Galbraith in World War II, which is a different circumstance. But even then, you had, you know, massive 
issues of corruption and everything else during World War II. Hmm. And, uh, and the inflation I just saw got as high as 20% one year. So, yes, we won World War II, but there's an asterisk. Uh, inflation went up. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> oh, okay, so, so. Yeah. Oh, so. So on a look back, on a look back, okay, which I picked up in the late 70s when I was actually working in, a, in 73, I didn't, didn't have any reason to look back. But the price of oil had been set by the Texas Railroad Commission up until the early 70s. And it was set through their quota system. And we had excess capacity in Texas and in, in Louisiana and in our oil belt. Sound familiar? And mm-hmm. so the Texas Railroad Commission, to keep the price from collapsing to 10 cents a barrel or whatever, 50 cents a barrel, would give everybody quotas. Sounding more familiar? <laughs> and, they, and they pegged the price at somewhere around 250 maybe $3 a barrel. And there were quotas so that you couldn't exceed to keep the price from falling below $3. And it stayed at $3 for what's called the golden age of economics and capitalism and everything else. And it was a golden age because the... Raw material for the whole economy, which then was oil, even the public utilities burned oil. Uh, the price was fixed by the Texas Railroad Commission, stabilized by a quota system to keep it from being lower. So, But it was stable. And so everything fed off of that price. Everything was a function of that. And I, everything, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And so we had very low inflation and low unemployment. And we could do that because uh, we had this excess capacity in oil and they kept um, lowering the, as we needed more and more of that Texas oil, uh, they kept um, increasing the quotas for people so that it could be met. Then by 1970 or 71, somewhere in there, I have the year wrong, uh, the demand for oil was higher than with no quotas, the demand exceeded the U.S. supply. And so now the price would go up unless we had foreign oil. Now, suddenly there's foreign oil, let's say from Saudi Arabia and OPEC, that's, um, and, and NACE became, so that the pricing switched from the Texas Railroad Commission to Saudi Arabia, where mm-hmm. they would set a price mm-hmm. and let their output adjust to that price. Before, the Texas Railroad Commission would set a price for Texas oil and let output adjust. Well, once that exceeded capacity, you can't do that anymore. So as long as the, Saudis had excess capacity, they could set a price and it wouldn't go above their price. They'd just sell more oil until they hit capacity. Then the, then they could lose control on the upside. Well, that, that didn't happen. They were just setting price. And the rest of OPEC was, you know, going along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And uh, this continued right up until the recession of 1979, where um, the demand collapsed, kind of like it did during COVID. And the demand collapsed uh, from the recession. Uh, and... Um, Saudi oil production went from whatever, 10 million barrels a day to less than five, which they couldn't cut anymore because then they have to cap wells and destroy your oil fields. So mm. the, they could no longer just set the price and, and sell less. They had to sell what they had. And so the price went down to 10 bucks a gallon or something like that, uh, a barrel or something like that. Uh, and, and the whole thing collapsed. And the price of oil came down from like four, high of 40 to maybe 10 over a few years as, as this whole, the whole OPEC thing came apart due to the recession. And at the same time, after that, 
the demand came back only slowly. Jimmy Carter had deregulated natural gas, which was exactly a, what I was. That was exactly yeah, what I was. Yeah, yeah. it okay. wasn't a major. If you look at the amount of gas consumed, it's it wasn't a major substitute immediately, but it became larger and, and it, allowed, it had to be psychological. Well, it allowed utilities to switch because when it's capped and, and people wouldn't pump because there's a 50 cent cap or something, then um, they couldn't switch to that product because they could run out. But once it was on cap, then, then they could switch. And so mm-hmm. the utilities would switch and uh, to natural gas and other and industry switched and globally things switched. There were, there were shifts to other things as the price of oil had gone up. So the immediate reason for the drop was the um, recession. But in addition to that, you know, um, a contributing factor was a deregulation of natural gas. And I'm sure coal and other things came on mm-hmm. as substitutes. Okay, so, you know, Volcker gets credit for breaking the inflation. But think about what would happen today if, you know, or what did happen today to our inflation numbers when oil broke from 140 or something down to whatever. The inflation numbers come down immediately. And uh, same thing, you know, the headline inflation number comes down immediately. It took a long time back then. And the reason what my narrative is, the reason why it took so long is because the high rates were keeping it, were sustaining it, and were a contributing factor to inflation staying high through, through the next 10 years. It came down slowly to 3% uh, as rates were lowered. And I know Richard Werner, who's, I think, last, he's a central banker, Bank of England, maybe, uh, I think he's a German economist, just did a paper a few years ago showing that the um, inflation, you know, interest rates lead inflation. So when interest rates come down, that, that inflation comes down, that type of thing, where he doesn't say the interest rate causes inflation, but he says they lead, which is, you know, uh, circumstantial evidence that when rates go up, they're causing inflation. When rates come down, they're causing inflation to come down. And it's CPI, which is obviously imprecise also. So it's not it's not rock-solid data, but it, at least it's good macro data over long periods of time in that direction. Okay. Uh, so anyway, so what caused the recession in 79, if not the high rates? So, so again, my narrative is that the high rate of inflation caused fiscal policy to tighten up dramatically. Uh, what happened was we had what they used to call bracket creep, where people were going into higher and higher tax brackets because of inflation. Revenues were skyrocketing like they're doing now for the government, or they were. And, um, you know, after COVID and after um, the economy picked up and once prices started picking up, uh, sales taxes and other transactions taxes generate more revenue from the government, and not just federal government, state and local government. And as you get higher prices, people's nominal savings in real terms, the, what it can buy drops. So if you're a business like uh, Apple and you've got $200 billion of cash, which you think is the right amount to safely run your operation in case things slow down, you can still do your R&D, you can still pay your bills, you feel comfortable with $200 billion in cash. If we had 100% inflation, uh, price increases, inflation, prices on everything doubled, all your wage bills doubled, everything else, suddenly $200 billion doesn't feel like a lot of money to you. Now you need $400 billion. Mm-hmm. And so just and that, and that you know, equates to pretty much everything. Pension funds need to have more to provide the same amount of inflation-adjusted income to 
retirees ultimately down the line and uh, people cash in everybody's cash register, the cash you carry around in your pockets, your savings, your size of your insurance policy, the insurance reserves, you know, it filters down everything. The net financial, the, the, the perceived need for net financial assets in the economy doubles if price level doubles. Now, uh, you know, some assets like stocks might go up to help you with that. I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't things, financial assets that don't go up, but there is, it does create a shortage. Okay. And, uh, and that can only, that shortage causes people not to spend and to pull back because their, their cash is down and, you know, they're vulnerable and uh, their savings is depleted. And they, there's, a, there's a need for a certain amount of real savings, what that, what that money can buy. Uh, just just on an operating basis for companies, and so that puts a big squeeze on because spending drops, spending is GDP, GDP, and you go into a recession. And it can easily be offset by the government running a larger deficit, but they don't realize it at the time. In fact, they're usually proud of themselves for uh, the deficit going down and whatnot. Now it's mm-hmm. not so clear, you know, clearly that happened in the end of the nineteen nineties because we actually posted a nominal budget surplus. We didn't have a lot of inflation. But at the end of the 70s, what happened was the, the real budget deficit, the real public debt was shrinking, just as if we were running a nominal surplus, except we were, there was inflation. So the inflation might have been 12% and the debt in the deficit for the year seven. Well, that means in real terms, you've just shrunk the net money supply in the economy by 5%. And then the whole thing caves in when you've got mm-hmm. that force in motion. So leave that long enough and keep pressing on that pedal and you will, that brake pedal, and you will cause everything to collapse. And that's, that's what caused it, in my narrative, that's what caused that recession in 1979, 1980. It was pretty severe and it wasn't identified as such because, uh, yes, debt to GDP came down, but nobody looks at that. They say, oh, the government's still running a large deficit. But the public debt itself, the outstanding public debt in real terms was coming down dramatically. And so uh, as evidenced by the debt, debt to GDP ratio coming down. 